The eighth psalm, I think you guys may be familiar with it. We just experienced some of that. Jess, thanks for getting that set up. Um, The eighth psalm says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. From the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise. From the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise. praise. That word praise also means strength. So thank you for the worship young ones and not so young ones. Um, if this keeps blowing, I'm at, are you guys warm or cool, good temperature? Just good? I may end up shutting that off. Depends if this thing keeps blowing my pages or not. But um, Obviously we're missing about five or six families this morning and I thought, you know, if we have 11 people show up, because the kids and I were talking about it, we're just going to say an amen and go eat. Um, but we have more than 11, so I'm going to go ahead and preach the message that I uh, prepared. Uh, last week, I concluded the, the sermon on um, the idea that this Sunday we would look at the concept of persecution. And I thought about it all week, and I, and I looked at the different stories that we find in the Bible. And um, it becomes apparent that we're not only to anticipate and expect persecution, but we're called to embrace it. Now I want you to think about that for a minute. We're, we're called throughout Scripture to embrace persecution. Um, some of you have heard me teach for quite a while, have heard me say that the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed, or that the Old Testament is physical, and the New Testament is spiritual. So we have all these physical examples in the Old Testament that we can apply spiritually to our lives in the New Testament. Uh, kind of like the do not, you know, do not take a set of clothing woven with two kinds of material, or do not, do not sow a field with two different types of seeds. And then we go to the spiritual side about being uh, mismatched or misyoked with unbelievers. And so we have a physical example in the Old Testament, and then we go into a spiritual application that we can uh, that we can uh, put on ourselves. And when I do these studies on like persecution, or if I do a study on faith, or if I do a study on repentance, or I do a study on Elijah, or whatever the study is, I go back to the original, I'm not trying to get all theological on you, but I do want to tell you how I kind of come to the conclusion on some of these things, is I'll, I'll go back to the original word of, of how it was used in the Old Testament in the Hebrew, and then I'll go to the New Testament in the Greek, and I'll try and find how it was written, and, and you look up in a concordance, and you look at the hundred different examples of when it was used, and that word persecution, uh, if you study that out in the scripture, it's used, you know, roughly 45 times in the New Testament, some form of the word, persecution, persecutor, persecutive, there's, there's like 45 different ways that the word with the same root of persecution is used in the New Testament, and that's not counting the Old Testament, although there's a lot of stories in the Old Testament we're going to look at. But in general, the word kind of means the same as you look at it in the New Testament. And the Greek word is D-I-O-K-O, which is dioko. So if you want to say, I know how to speak Greek, you can say, I know what it means. Persecution means, is the word is dioko. So everybody say dioko. That wasn't everybody. I saw mouse that didn't move. Everybody say dioko. Now you speak Greek. Okay, you know a Greek word. So it's like I speak Spanish because I can say gracias or lava sus manos, as my dad would constantly say when I was a kid. Wash your hands. So dioko in the Greek is a word that's used um, to show this pursuit of something. 
uh, to persecute, to ensue, to follow after, to press on toward. It refers to those seeking to punish more specifically to the New Testament Christians. It's a word that refers to those seeking to punish God's messengers with a vengeance. That's what the word is used and how the word is used in the New Testament. And it's, it's parallel, and it's, it, one of the examples that was used by some of the early writers was it is like a hunter hunting to bring someone down like an animal. So I know not everybody's a hunter in here. I, I am, uh, and many of us are. We, we hunt for sustenance. We hunt for food. And so just yesterday and the day before, Jonas and I were hunting for a bear, and we were pursuing an animal to bring him down. Brian's going on a sheep hunt today. He is pursuing a sheep over the next five days. Justin, you've got a goat. A goat is that you've got a goat tag. He's going to go high up into the mountains of Colorado and he's going to pursue, he's going to persecute a goat, Lord willing. We do that with elk and we do that with deer. Is that we're seeking, we're seeking to take down this animal. And that word is used in persecution of Christians. It's to punish them and suppress them when it comes to not the animals, but the Christians. The idea of persecution is to punish them and to suppress them for their convictions. That is the root meaning of the word persecute. And so Jesus introduces this teaching, and this is very applicable because of what it says here in Matthew chapter 5. If you go over to Matthew 5, and you look at the very first verse or two, and it says, Now when he saw the crowds, Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him. And so, when I, oftentimes when I read the Bible, and a lot of people read the Bible, they ask the question, is this relative to today? Is this something that we can apply to ourselves, or is this something that is only for the New Testament Christians? Is this something only for the prophets or the nation of Israel? And I think it's important to look at the Bible and look at it in, as a dispensational book, as we've talked about, where it's like, who is it written to? Who wrote it? Who did he write it to? And why did he write it? What was the point of the scripture? What was the point of the writing by Jeremiah or Isaiah or Paul or John or Peter or Timothy or Moses? What was the point? Who was he writing to and for what purpose? Because I think if we don't take it in context, we can completely misunderstand what God was trying to tell us or what God is trying to tell us. So in Matthew chapter 5, when Jesus saw his disciples, that word disciple comes from the root of discipline. Being disciplined. After who? Who were they disciples of? Jesus. They had people that were disciples of John. In one passage in Corinthians, it talks about they were followers of Moses. They were disciples of Moses. Well, Jesus pulls this group of people, his disciples, people that said, I'm going to follow this man right here. He told me to throw down my nets. He told me to come after him. He told me to, to I'm going to make you fishers of men. So Jesus says, I'm going to take these people and they're going to be my disciples. You see that in, the, in the, the, the Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Go into all the world. Make disciples. Get them to, to be disciples, disciplined after me. And so when he's saying that he's bringing, he sat down his disciples, people that followed Jesus, came to him, and Jesus began to teach them. It's the first and longest teaching we have of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. And he goes on to teach them. Now the question I have to myself is, am I a disciple of Jesus? Or is this cultural? Is this something that only applies 
to the fisherman or the tax collector or the doctor? Is it only applying to people back then, 2,000 years ago, that Jesus called? Or does this apply to Nate Porter today? Does this apply to Justin Howell today? Does this apply to each and every one of us that are sitting in this room that claim to be disciples of Jesus? That's a question that I want you to ask yourself as we go forward with the message. So he says, he calls his disciples and he says to them, and then he gives them the, the, the blessings, right? Blessed are the poor, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are the hunger. And he goes on to say, you guys are going to be happy, blessed. You're going to be, uh, I looked up that word too, just, and I know we've looked at it before. Fortunate, happy, well off. Fortunate, happy, well off. Fortunate and happy and well off are you who are poor in spirit, are those who mourn, are those who are meek, are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, and those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is saying, happy are those, well off are those, those are gonna, you are going to benefit from being persecuted, sought after. That was the teaching that Jesus gave his disciples at the very beginning. Blessed are you in verse 11. Blessed, blessed are you. And again, I've got to go back to the meaning of that word where it says fortunate, happy, well off. Jesus is talking to his disciples and he's saying fortunate are you, happy are you, well off are you when people insult you persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil of, uh, against you because of me. Because of Jesus, you are persecuted, you are made fun of, you are beat, you are insulted. Fortunate are you, blessed are you, happy are you, well off are you. And then he says, which we've got to do business with, rejoice and be glad. He just got done telling them, you're going to be persecuted now I want you to rejoice. That's not a melancholy adverb or adjective, whatever it is. I always leave her here. She would tell me. What is that? Brooke, you know it. That's not this joyous word. Or it's not this, this melancholy word. It's a joy. It says rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Again, what is physical is spiritual. The Old Testament concealed, the New Testament revealed. We see all of these stories in the Old Testament from Genesis all the way to Malachi of people being persecuted for God. And God is saying, they were persecuted just like you're going to be persecuted. And great is your reward. Remember, they, they persecuted them first. So blessed are you when this happens. Now, when I look at this teaching, I go, man, the early prophets, and you go back the Old Testament, you start looking at what some of these people went through, and kind of in summary of what a lot of them went through, they, they, they were persecuted through ridicule, they were made fun of, they were uh, persecuted by being silenced. There was a passage in Jeremiah I read recently, and I was, we were studying with a friend, and there's this idea in Jeremiah, and, and the prophet is speaking, sorry, Jeremiah 30, what am I, did I get that wrong? No. Well, I might have. I might just have to quote it. Oh, it's Jeremiah 5. Never mind. I... Oh, I don't like when I write down the wrong verse. Give me a second. I've got to... Now I'm going to have to go back and make my point. I've got to find my, my reference to it. Sometimes I get a little dyslexic and I write it down 
backwards. It's actually in 2 Timothy, not Isaiah. I wrote Jeremiah. It's Isaiah, sorry. Isaiah 30. Where was I? You guys paying attention? Okay, in Isaiah 39, about the prophets being persecuted through people saying, be quiet, be silenced. In Jeremiah 30, it says, verse 9, these are rebellious people, deceitful children, children unwilling to listen to the Lord's instruction. They say to the seers, see no more visions, and to the prophets, give us no more visions of what is right. Tell us pleasant things, prophesy illusions, leave this way, get off this path, and stop confronting us with the Holy One of Israel. So the nation of Israel is saying to the prophets, quit talking to us about God. You're speaking the name of God, you're teaching God's ways, and we don't want to hear it anymore. That is a persecution of the prophets. Silence, prophets. Be quiet. They have accusations thrown at them and their message reported back to the authorities and they're in trouble for it. They're being debarred from attending God's house. The prophets, by having their prophetic prophetic words both spoken and written, they were rejected. Moses and Joshua were giving the words of God and they were constantly being rejected by God's people. They were placed in stocks. They were kept in chains. They were slapped in the face. They were imprisoned in cells, dungeons and cisterns. And they were threatened with death. And some were even put to death. Now, oftentimes when we read these stories, if we're, now we can go back to Jeremiah. Um, when we read these stories, it's easy for us to look at these stories of a book written a long time ago and go, yeah, but that doesn't really apply to us. But Jesus was saying, the same way they prosecuted or persecuted the prophets, they're going to persecute my disciples. Again, are we his disciples? The same way. It's going to happen. And in Jeremiah chapter 26, starting in verse 20, it says, Now Uriah, son of Shemaiah, from Kiriath-Jerim, was another man who prophesied in the name of the Lord. He prophesied the same things against this city and this land as Jeremiah did. When King Jehoiakim And all his officers and officials heard his words. The king sought to put him to death. So this was a prophet who was prophesying prophesying in the name of God. And the king of the time, Jehoiakim, was going to put him to death. But Uriah heard of it and fled in fear to Egypt. King Jehoiakim, however, sent Elnathan, son of Ebor, to Egypt along with some other men. They brought Uriah out of Egypt and took him to King Jehoiakim. Who had struck down, who had him struck down with his sword and his body thrown into the burial place of the common people. Where there's one example, there's many more of prophets in the Old Testament being persecuted to the point of death for their faith in God, for their trusting in the Lord, for the prophesying against the sin and the disobedience of the nation of Israel. And again, Jesus parallels Matthew chapter 5, where he says, in the same way. I'm going to read it again in Matthew chapter 5. He says, Blessed are you when people insult you, insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So we see these stories throughout the Old Testament what's physical 
And then we come into this spiritual New Testament and we see this persecution and as disciples we ask ourselves, well, am I going to be persecuted like the early apostles were? Am I going to be persecuted like the early prophets were? We have Jesus telling us to be blessed, but when I look at these persecutions, oftentimes we look at them and go, well, in America we don't experience physical persecution. We'll talk about different types of persecution, but we, we don't really experience, we don't have people being, you know, tarred and feathered. We don't have them being martyred. We don't have them burned at the stake. We don't have them being hung for their faith in God. But not all persecution is physical. In Jeremiah chapter 18, again, I keep going back to the Old Testament because of what Jesus is talking about the prophets. But in Jeremiah chapter 18, bear with me here. In verse 26, I'm sorry, in verse 13, Jeremiah 18. Starting in verse 13, therefore this is what the Lord says. So in Jeremiah chapter 18, verse 13, therefore this is what the Lord says. Jeremiah is prophesying about what the Lord is saying. He says, inquire among the nations. Who has ever heard anything like this? A most horrible thing has been done by virgin Israel. Does the snow of Lebanon ever vanish from its rocky slopes? Does its cool waters from distant sources ever cease to flow? Uh, does God ever stop providing for His people? God is continually saying, I'm, I'm giving you the snows. I'm giving you the waters. You're, you have what you need. You're an agrarian society. You have water. You have plants. You're able to feed each other. You're able to feed the temple. You're able to feed the priests. Yet my people have forgotten me. They have burned incense to worthless idols, which made them stumble in their ways and in the ancient paths. They made them walk in bypaths and on roads not built up. Their land will be laid waste, an object of lasting scorn, and all who pass by will be appalled and will shake their heads. Like a wind from the east, I will scatter them before their enemies. I will show them my back and not my face in the day of disaster. He says this because it says, they said, okay, the nation of Israel is disobeying God. They said, come, let's make plans against Jeremiah the prophet. Let's make plans against Jeremiah. For the teaching of the law by the priests will not be lost, nor will counsel from the wise, nor the word from the prophets. So come, let's attack him with our tongues and pay no attention to anything he says. There was not a physical persecution in this instance, of what they're saying against Jeremiah. He says, they say, so come, let's attack him with our tongues and pay no attention to anything he says. Let's talk bad about him and let's ignore him. Let's attack him and disregard everything he's saying in the name of God. That is a physical example of what disciples can experience in the New Testament, in the New Covenant. His disciples, the disciples of Jesus, can expect this. Because Jesus says again in Matthew chapter 5, in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You will also be persecuted in the same way. So some persecution is verbal and some is physical. In 2 Samuel chapter 16, I always found this story, I don't know if you've read it before, maybe you haven't, but if not, follow me. 2 Samuel chapter 16 verse 5. 
Some of the words in here are difficult. I'm just going to tell you right now. I've looked them up and I've written them down in my Bible how to pronounce them, but I don't speak um, 2 Samuel. So uh, you have bear with me here. I think I didn't say it right. As King David ap- ap- approached by Hurim, a man from the same clan as Saul's family came out from there. His name was Shimei, son of Gerai, when he cursed as he came, and he cursed as he came out. He pelted David and all the king's officials with stones, though all the troops and the special guard were on David's right and left. Okay, that's easy to read, but I want you to think about this. The king of Israel is walking with guards on his right and left. And this guy, Shimei, son of Gerai, cursed at David as he came out. He pelted David and all the king's officials with stones. The king of Israel, (laughs) picture this, the king of Israel is walking out and a guy is throwing rocks at him and hitting him and his officials. Now, I've gotten a little political in messages sometimes here. Because I think politics and religion do belong from the pulpit. I think we should talk about it. I think our early forefathers did. I think Jesus got political. Can you imagine if when Donald Trump was president, or George Bush, or Bill Clinton, or John F. Kennedy, or Abraham Lincoln, or Joe Biden, was walking down the road, and somebody began throwing rocks at them, what would happen? That's what would happen. And yet this guy is doing that to the king, the king of Israel. And he cursed it, uh, David. He says, get out, get out, you man of blood, you scoundrel. The Lord has repaid you for all the blood you shed in the household of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. The Lord has handed the kingdom over to your son Absalom. You have come to ruin because you are a man of blood. Then Abshai, son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and cut off his head. That's what I should do. He's throwing stones at the king of Israel, who's in a battle right now, and Absalom's trying to take over the kingship, the throne. And he says, Why should this dog curse my king? You were put there by God. Why should we allow that to happen? Let me go kill him. And that makes sense because you're, you're, you're talking about the king of the land and they're throwing rocks at him. But the king said, What do you and I have in common, you sons of Zeruiah? Zeruiah? If he is cursing because the Lord said to him, Curse David, who can ask, Why do you do this? David then said to Abishai and all his officials, My son, who is of my own flesh, is trying to take my life. How much more than this Benjamite? Leave him alone, let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. This is the past, this is the verse right here that was just helps you understand why David is called a man after God's own heart. He says, It may be that the Lord will see my distress and repay me with good for the cursing I am receiving today. The guy just hit me with rocks. He just cursed me. I have someone that's willing to go kill him. 
on my account? And David's response is, it may be that the Lord will see my distress and repay me with good for the cursing I am receiving today. That does not sound like a prideful king. That sounds like a king after God's own heart. Regardless of his improprieties and his mistakes, that seems like a man after God's own heart. I've asked myself, how that word repay means to return. Maybe God will see my distress, the Lord will see my distress, and repay me, return me with good for the cursing I am receiving today. Again, blessed are the meek, blessed are the merciful, and blessed are you when those persecute you for my sake. What what blessing could David possibly be talking about? Let's look at the Old Testament and let's go back, let's go into the New Testament with spiritual. What potential blessing could Jesus be taught? What great reward? What, when he says, blessed are you when those are persecuted for the righteousness sake, what blessing is he talking about? Is he talking about more joy? Is he talking about peace? Is he talking about fortune? Material blessings? I don't know. I can't tell. I think, I think yes to all of those. I think he's saying, yes, you're going to experience peace in here because you do what I say. So we have Jesus here saying that we're blessed when we're insulted, persecuted, and lied about. Now, i got to clarify. He says you will be blessed when you're, when you're insulted, persecuted, and lied about because of me, is what he says. It's a very important part of the scripture there. Oftentimes we'll just look at it and go, oh, we're going to be blessed because... No, he says, blessed are you when people insult you persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. It's not like, you know, man, I got I was cheating on my taxes and the IRS came in and they saw, you know, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord and I got 15 years in Leavenworth. Man, I'm being persecuted for Jesus' name. No, you got persecuted because you were cheating on your taxes. That's why you got persecuted. You had a sign on your wall that said Jesus and said the Lord, but it says here, you're persecuted because of me. Or I got caught doing something wrong and I got, you know, I got a ticket, I got speeding and I got a ticket and the guy knew I was going to church and he saw my Bible, so he gave me a speeding ticket. No, you got a speeding ticket because you were speeding. You weren't like speeding in the name of Jesus, you were speeding because you left home late. There's a, that's what you got to understand. There's a difference when you're persecuted because of Jesus, then you will have a great reward, not because of sin. Sin just meaning imperfect. When you do 65 and a 45, Brenda, it's in, it's you're, she's not she's not here. It's imperfect. Oh, she is here. Yeah, it's it's you're imperfect. You've missed the mark. That's that's the point of what I'm trying to make here. So rejoice and be glad. So when Jesus saying we're to do this, we're to be blessed when we're insulted. Rejoice and be glad. Now I want to look at the New Testament. In the New Testament, we see these examples because we see the prophets dealing with this in the Old Testament. We are called disciples. We are called disciples because in Matthew 28 it says, Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. So we are disciples of Jesus. 
And he's talking to his disciples. So after Jesus ascends into heaven in Acts chapter 2, the apostles begin to go, and it says, don't leave Jerusalem, I need you to preach the gospel, and then you go to Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. So they're in, they're in Jerusalem, and in Acts chapter 5, there's this story, and I'll try and summarize it because it's a fairly long reading, but it says the high priest and all his associates and the members of the ruling party, because they were in a theocracy, they were under the Sanhedrin, and they had laws to follow, you know, pre-PJ, pre-Jesus, and so they... They were saying, you can't do this, you can't blaspheme, you can't speak uh, that, that we are bad and we are wrong and we are over, over you religiously. And so the apostles, they were preaching in the temple courts and they were teaching about Jesus. And they found out and they said, you've got to throw these guys in jail because they're preaching against us. And so they throw them in jail and they're in the middle of the night and the jail doors open and they escape. The guards are still there. And so they came in the next morning and they're like, these guys aren't here anymore. The doors are closed and the guards are still there, but there's nobody around. What happened? And they're perplexed. The Sanhedrin, the guards, they're perplexed. They don't know what happened. So they go out and there are these, these apostles, these disciples of Jesus, talking about Jesus in the temple courts. And they get upset and they're like, bring them in. We've already told them not to do this once. Bring them in. And so they brought the apostles in and made them appear before the Sanhedrin, and they were questioned by the high priest, and he says, we gave you strict orders not to talk to anybody in this name. We told you don't do this. Why are you doing it? You filled Jerusalem with your teaching and determined to make us guilty of his blood. And the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. Close your church doors. Don't meet. Don't fellowship. It's against the law. It's against the law. <laughs> it's recorded. It's okay. When our government says don't meet, don't fellowship together, stay away from each other, don't do what is commanded in Scripture to do. That's what happened. And it happened then, and he says, we told you don't talk about this man anymore. And they said, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. We are witnesses of these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and they said, well, let's kill him. Let's kill these guys. They're disobeying us. And thankfully, God in his wisdom had a Pharisee named Gamaliel, who was a very respected member of the Jewish ruling council. And Gamaliel says, get outside, guys, you apostles. We need to t- I need to talk to these guys. And he says, hey, remember like six years ago? I'm, I'm adding a few things in the story. Remember six years ago, there was this guy named you know, Jehoshaphat, and he had a bunch of followers, and he said he was the Christ. And then a month later, it all fizzled out. And remember a while later, there was this gal named Rufa, and she had a bunch of followers and she said she was going to be the crime. Remember all this stuff that happened and it never worked out. It always takes care of itself, guys. If you fight against these men and they turn out to be the real deal, you're going to find yourself fighting against God. Let's just wait and see what happens. And they went, oh, that's a good call, Gamaliel. Thanks for being so wise. And so they brought the guys back in and they said to them, (sighs) 
doesn't quote it. It just says, His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. That word means beaten. It's not a slap on the wrist. When you go study flogging, and you look it up and what they do, it's a it's, it's very unpleasant experience. So these guys were preaching the gospel. They were told not to do it anymore. They were persecuted for the faith. And they were beaten. And afterwards said, they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus. We just beat the tar out of you. Don't go speaking in this name of Jesus anymore. And what did they do? They left, they scattered, and Christianity died. Is that what happened? No. The very next verse says, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing. (laughs) They had just been beaten, Brian, because they were preaching Jesus to people. And he says they were rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. And then it says, day after day in the temple courts and from the house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. So these guys were persecuted, physically beat, and went and preached the gospel right after. And rejoiced because they were counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name of God. This whole, this whole reaction of these guys seems counterintuitive to me. This whole reaction is like, that doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense that these guys could be physically beat and told not to preach in the name of Jesus and consider it a blessing, rejoicing. We've got to ask, how did they get to that point here? How did they get to that point? How did the prophets get to that point? How did Jeremiah, how did Isaiah, how did Paul, how did Peter, how did the apostles get to that point where when they were physically assaulted, when they were verbally assaulted, they said, I don't care. We must obey God rather than man. We're going to keep doing it. How did they get mentally to that point? A few days ago, maybe a week, four or five days ago, I... We have a, there's a 15-acre field that's in need of plowing. The grass had grown up about this tall and great place for devs to hide in, but the grass had grown up this tall and it's good grass for cows and horses. But it hasn't been maintained well. Um, it's been neglected for seven or eight years, six years. And so these weeds have grown up inside with the, with the grass. So the weeds are this tall as well. And I, I talked to one of the local farmers and I said, well, do you want to just bail it? And he says, yeah. The custom farmer guy that does it, he'll take the hay if he cuts it and all that and bails it. He says, it's just not, it's not good grass right now for horses or cattle. He said, so what we need to do is, we meaning, he says, what you need to do is you need to, you need to brush hog this whole thing, you need to cut it all down to the bottom, and then before fall happens, we'll do one more quick cut, we'll, we'll pin it and we'll seed it and we'll be able to put a lot more grass seed in there and then hopefully the grass will overtake the weeds. Well, that, that'll preach there, right? The wheat and the tares, but that's a whole other message. So I said, okay. So I'm out there and I got the brush hog and I got my earbuds on and it's 95 degrees, but the 
sissy equipment I had has AC in it, so I'm just having a good time in my brush hog and my skid steer. It's like three or four hours worth of cutting back and forth. Well, I got in there and I go, okay, the, the roads are running north and south. I want to run north and south because I'm on tracks, and if I go perpendicular to the tracks, it's like it's bumping. It's just jarring your back all the time. So I'm just going to run along with the roads. I'm going to whip a 180, and I'm going to come back. So I made about 10 or 15 passes. I get about six feet at a pass, five feet at a pass, and I've got a field that just goes for a long ways. I figure it's going to take a long time. So I jump in there, and I make a pass, and I turn around, I make another pass, and I do this about 10 or 12 times, and I look back, and I look like I had hired Cooter from the Dukes of Hazard to do it. I mean, it is just, it's like this. It is not, it's not like a manufactured arrow. It's just, it's just wavy. And I remember thinking, 10 years ago, I was talking to this farmer at church. True story. 10 years ago, I was talking to this farmer at church. And I said, when, I'm a kid, when I was a kid, and we would drive by on vacation, we'd drive up uh, north to Ventura, and we'd pass a lot of these fields that were farmer fields. And you know those rows? If you look at those rows, if you're driving 60 miles an hour, they look like really tall legs that run really fast. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? You do? So you do that? I do that. I still do it. As I'm driving, I'm like, okay, oh, get back because he's like, these legs are going. And I, I, I told the farmer, I said, every now and again, if we'd slow down, you'd see when it just wasn't perfectly straight. And it used to bother me as a kid. I'm like, why can't the farmer just keep it straight? And he says, well, it's harder than you think. And I said, well, how do you, as a farmer, how do you keep it straight? How do you keep your, your cut to where it's just, when you look back, you're proud. And he says, it's pretty simple. I'm going to give you a secret. He goes, in the distance, you need to focus on a mountaintop, you need to focus on a tree, you need to focus on a, a, a tower, something beyond the end of the field. That's what you need to focus on. If you just focus on that, and you're pointing kind of your, your, your equipment right to that, and you're just going, I got, and every now and again you check and you look, you know, but if you stay on that, you're going to be really surprised at the end of the day those lines are going to be straight. You're going to just go up there and you just need to, you need to fix your eyes on that mountaintop. You just need to fix it. You need to focus on that. And when you're done, those lines are going to be straight and you can be proud of your line. And I thought, that'll preach. That'll preach. How do these apostles... How did the apostles, how did the prophets, how do disciples today keep their lines straight? How do they in Matthew chapter 7, when Jesus makes it very clear, when He says, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it, but small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. How do these disciples keep that straight and narrow that Jesus is talking about? How did the apostles do it? And in the book of Hebrews, the writer says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders. That word hinders means a weight. It means a burden. Throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. This is a, this is a teaching from the writer of Hebrews to Christians. 
It's not written to non-Christians. He's writing to people that are in Christ. If you look at the study in the, in the book of Hebrews, he's talking about those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the gift of the heavenly ghost, the heavenly spirit. He's talking to people that actually were in Christ. And he says, let's throw off everything that entangles us and let's run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Let us look at Jesus way out in advance so we don't get in this broad, enormous road and we look like my first 10 passes. But my last 15 or 50 or 70 passes, whatever it was, were straight because I'm like, I'm just going to focus on that. And when I was doing that, I was thinking about this message, and I go, man, that, like I said, that'll preach. We get so entangled with the white noise that happens out there, with the persecution that comes from our government, the persecution that comes from people in our world, in our businesses, in our families sometimes, in relationships we have, we get fixated on that, and we lose focus on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And there's nobody in this room that it's not susceptible to that. Me included. Everyone. Everyone is susceptible to losing focus on why we're here. And that is how we can take persecution and consider it joy. Because we're recognizing the finish line. The race marked out for us. He says, persevere because the race is marked out for us. I'm going to go to my conclusion because I think I've said what I wanted to say, but I write here, churches will be required to shut down when we talk about future persecution. They've already tried it. The government's already tried it, folks. And it worked. It worked for a lot of churches. It worked for us for a couple weeks, so we went, you know what? It's not a building, it's fellowship. Let's just fellowship outdoors somewhere. And we did. But a lot of churches shut down for 6, 8, 12 year. They shut their doors. That's persecution. Whether or not you want to talk, it, that is persecution. For your faith, because of your faith, you're going to get in trouble for doing this. The Bible says that if someone does not provide for his family members, especially his immediate family, he is worse than an unbeliever, he is worse than an infidel. You can't go to work. You can't go to work. You can't provide for your family. That's persecution. Because of your faith. You might be called a racist, a xenophobe, a homophobe, because you adhere to the teachings of Jesus. And Christians, unfortunately, have misunderstood the teachings of Jesus and the teachings of the Bible. And they've said and done things that give Christianity a bad name. We can't control that. All we can do is say, well, here's what the Bible says. God loves you and wants you to be in a relationship with Him and wants you to go to heaven for eternity. And that's why Jesus came to die on the cross for you. Is there a cost? Absolutely there's a cost. Your life, your choices, your decision, your will, gone. Now it's God's will. What does that look like? It's different for everybody. For some people, it may mean don't work as much. For other people, it may mean you need to get out of the prostitution ring, which is in the Scriptures. Go and sin no more. 
that it's required that you change your life with the help of the Holy Spirit. You might be called a, an evil human being because of the word. But I put in bold here, the world will hate you if your theology defines your ideology. The world will hate you. You will be persecuted. Expect it. Rejoice in it. Rejoice in it. The white noise doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I was studying with Saddam, this is my notes, but I was studying years ago with someone that came to me. And they said, we're really struggling at home. We're struggling at home. We need help. I'm like, well, I've been married, you know, seven years. I'm an expert. Let's talk. <laughs> but what I could say is, I know what the scriptures teach about this subject. Let's look at it together. So I opened up the Word. We opened up the Word. We went through a study. And the scriptures are very clear about a couple of things. So we dealt with it. And it wasn't six months later, I was talking to a friend who talked to a friend who talked to somebody that knew me and said some of the most painful to hear things about me that I had heard in a long time. And I thought, well, no, I don't believe what you just said, but I do believe this, and here's where I get it. In context, this is how I can back it up with Scripture. But the world says, no, that's not right. But the Word says, this is, this is right. This works. This works. So persecution will come on account of the written Word. Count on it. And you need the Spirit of God to stay bold and to say, you know what, I don't care what my grandma says. I don't care what my best friend from high school says. I don't care what my employer says. It doesn't matter. The only thing that matters, the only thing that matters is what does the Word say. I'm going to stand firm on that. And that's how, that's fixing your eyes on Jesus. Let's pray for the mighty hunters uh, that are going to go up, up into the woods, up in the mountains, um, for for uh, for safety and um, for success and the food. And then, Dad, you've got communion. Is that right? Who has? It? Okay. Father God in heaven, we come to you as your creation, your creation that have been made in your image, if you have said it is very good. God, we are constantly bombarded with, uh, with false information. We are bombarded with people that are telling us that truth is not truth, that evil is good and good is evil. Father, I pray that we have the courage and the strength to persevere in this race that you've marked out for us that you give us the strength to continue to fight, to be bold, to have, to have courage, to have tenacity in the eyes of the, the uh, persecution that we will 
undergo if we are your disciples. Father, I pray a blessing on um, those that are going out and, and going to attempt to have dominion over your creation. That it's done with honor and respect and that it's a, a good harvest. Keep them safe. Keep them protected. Um, help them enjoy your what you've given us to enjoy. Father, I also pray, uh, pray for those that aren't here today. You protect them on their travels. You be with them in spirit. And, uh, and that you guide them while they're away. And uh, also, Father, please bless the food that we're about to eat here in a little bit. And um, keep us healthy and strong. We praise the name of Jesus. Amen.